uh, get our Bibles, and we are going to be reading from God's Word here. Where's Rebecca? Right there. Rebecca's going to come and lead us, and we're going to be turning in our Bibles to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. So let's stand together. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if it is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cast off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is a new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are this side of you, then take them then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. 
But if I say to the youth, look, the arrow, arrows are beyond you, are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of listening to your word, of having your word and being guided by your word. Lord, we recognize that you speak to us by your spirit through the word. So Lord, help us today to be humble before you, to be receptive to what it is you want to teach us, how you want to mold us through your word. And allow me as your messenger to be a mouthpiece, Lord, for this text of scripture. And Lord, would you shape us and fashion us to be more conformed to the image of your son, whether that be personally, whether that be in the context of family, whether that be in the context of church. Lord, would you have your way with us and accomplish your purposes, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have some really good news that I want to share with you. This week, uh, while talking with AT&T, I found out that I am an AT&T loyal customer. I'm really honored to have that title attributed to me. I don't know if anyone else out there uh, carries that AT&T gold card membership loyalty card, um, but this is basically how it played out. We had a contract that lasted 12 months. The contract ended and the price was going to go up. It went up. It showed up on our bill. I call AT&T and I say, we're not paying this new amount. We're not going to continue to do this. And I'm sorry, sir, we can't do anything about it. This is the best we can do. And it was like twice as much as what we had initially agreed to. And so I said, well, do you have any other options? Well, no, sir, we don't have any other options. Well, I'm looking online, and here are some options, and they're the same amount I was paying before. Oh, yes, sir, that's only for people who are new customers. I said, interesting. Do you have any programs for um, almost gone customers? And they said, well, Mr. Phillips, it's clear by looking at your data on this screen that you have been a loyal customer of AT&T. And of course, they shifted me to another department that was able to give me something that was considerably cheaper. So anyway, I just want to tell you, it's great to be a loyal customer. I didn't realize I was a loyal customer. I was very close to being a disloyal customer at that point in time and was happy to go down that path if necessary. Now, this, this passage that we're going to be looking at today, uh, as we just begin to think about it, is a passage that speaks to the subject of loyalty and how that loyalty is fleshed out in the context of friendship, and how that loyalty is tested by things that come up that maybe are unexpected or not necessarily believed. And I think you would agree with me that loyalty is a subject or is a, a concept in our contemporary culture that has somewhat waned over time whether it's national loyalty, whether it's familial loyalty, whether it's marriage loyalty, whether it's vocational loyalty. Um, there's all different ways that loyalty can be played out, but today it's almost as if, hey, I'm not loyal to anyone because I'm going to do what I'm going to do and what's best for me. Now, friends, we need to understand from this passage that there is something beautiful about loyalty that is 
critically important for the ongoing development of relationships that are lasting and that are meaningful in our lives. That could be, again, familial, but it's also not just horizontal, it's also vertical. There's a loyalty to Christ, there's a loyalty to the church that is absolutely necessary for every child of God. So let's just think through this chapter a little bit. Let's, uh, let's look through um, some of the, the themes that are in here as we kind of set the stage for specifically understanding what our text is about. 1 Samuel 20 can be divided into two sections, and that's what we're doing this week, and then the next time we're in 1 Samuel, we're gonna jump into verses 24 through 43. The first part here is the unfolding of a plan, if you wanna put it that way. The second part would be the execution of that plan. And so Jonathan and David come up with a plan, and the last part of this chapter is the actual execution of that plan, carrying out of it. Then also in this chapter, you'll notice that there are three main characters, three primary characters that have been primary for a number of chapters here. And the primary characters are Saul, who's the king, now, he's the people's king, but he is the king right now. There is Jonathan, who is the son of the king. And then you have David, who is God's chosen king, who has not yet actually achieved that status. And so what you have with these kingships is you have them traveling in two different directions. You have David, who is in the process of ascending that kingship. And you have Saul, who is in the process of descending, and maybe a better word would be degenerating, um, basically as that people's demanded king. And Jonathan now is kind of like this, this key player in this, this scenario and this story and these relationships here. So you got the father and the son, and there should be some loyalty there, but you also have a son who is loyal to now his friend David, that is at play, and we're gonna see some things unfold that are pretty incredible, really, when we, uh, when we come to the end of it, we'll see the importance and the significance of that. So what marks this text uh, and its characters is a covenant loyalty. In fact, as you look through this, this chapter, you'll notice the word covenant used a number of times. And in David and Jonathan's relationship, if you remember, Jonathan initiated a covenant with David. All right, so this is Jonathan's doing, but David agrees with that covenant, comes into that covenant, but now this covenant is gonna be on display and it's gonna be tested. David is concerned about his covenant with Jonathan in a present sense. Jonathan is concerned about his covenant with David, ultimately in a future sense, and we'll see that unfold. And so the question that this text seeks to answer is this. What does it mean to make a vow? What does it mean to fulfill your covenant with a friend? How will the struggles and fears of life test the security of that covenant? And I think we've probably all been there before in relationships where we've had friends, people that have said they're friends, people that have communicated to us that they're friends, and yet they do something against us, they do something that is disloyal, and we say to them, how could you, I thought that you were my friend. We've probably said those words to someone. We've probably said those words in grief, in anguish, because we really thought that we had a loyalty. But that loyalty has been dashed. Now remember Saul's words to Jonathan, his son, 
after Jonathan reasons with his father about David's innocence, this is after Saul said, all right, I want to kill David. Go back to chapter 19 and verse 6. How does Saul respond to his son, Jonathan, who is arguing this case? It says, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he, that would be David, shall not be put to death. So this is what Saul promised his son would be true. But what good is a vow if that vow is broken? This is a key backdrop to understanding our text today. So as we approach 1 Samuel 21 through 23, we want to see that these dangerous and fearful times for Jonathan and David are shaped and fashioned by their covenant before the Lord. Another way to put it is this. We're looking here at the fruit or the challenges or the testing of the loyalty of covenant friendship. See, there's, there's a friendship that is, that is deeper than simply saying, hey, I'm your friend. There's a covenant friendship. There's a promise made. There's a, there's a loyalty communicated. And that's what we have in the relationship of Jonathan and David. Now this, this passage is also laced with fear. As you notice there, I say these dangerous and fearful times. I say dangerous and fearful because this passage is full of fear. And fear, friends, is a key motivator of many things that we do. For example, we go to work to some degree because we fear poverty. We wanna have money, we wanna be able to go to the grocery store, we wanna have a roof over our head, and so that can motivate us to go to work. We exercise or eat carefully for fear of poor health, or not being able to fit in the clothes you have, depending on your situation. We make friends sometimes, in part, because we fear loneliness. And sometimes we will throw ourselves into a friendship because we're lonely. Not necessarily because that friendship is good, but we're lonely and so we want that void to be filled. And sometimes we make unwise decisions in that, but it's, it's a key motivator that draws us or pushes us to actually act. And so fear is present here. We'll have to understand there's both healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. Let's just think through a little bit about healthy fear. I um, think I have a healthy fear of heights. Anyone here join with me in that? All right. I mean, there's a lot of people have a fear of heights, you know. It's not just when I'm up high. Sometimes it's when I'm down low. When you're down low and you're looking at the skyscraper that's like, you know, 150 stories high, if there is such a thing, I don't know, right? But you, you look up there, and I'm just looking up there, and my legs are wobbling. I'm just thinking about what it would be like to be on top of there. Then I'm thinking about the guy who's washing the windows around this thing, right? Then, then I also have, a, I think, a healthy fear of a bandsaw. You know what a bandsaw is? All right? I like these things. They're called fingers, and I prefer that they stay on my hands, and so in the wood shop, and I like to do some of that stuff. I'm not good at it. I used to do it when I was younger. Um, but I have this kind of fear of, of saws. And it's a healthy fear. It's a good thing. 
you better be fearful of those things, right? So in each case, fear causes us to be careful and purposeful with our actions to make sure that safety is a priority. One person has said, if you fear nothing and no one, you would be both a fool and a danger to others. Just think through that. Then there are unhealthy fears, or to put it another way, unnecessary fears. Much of our modern psychology deals with fear that is imagined or exaggerated. And in such cases, our fear, or phobias, they're often called, can result in paralyzed behavior or behavior that is simply inappropriate. For example, when a student is preparing for their final exam and, and everyone around them is saying, you know, you gotta get an A, you gotta get an A. And so they're, they're working hard and they're studying hard, but they get so fearful that they're going to fail in the exam. Their fear may simply be imagined because they haven't taken the test yet. But the fact that they're fearful may be the means by which that fear is actually realized. And it's not because they should have been fearful, it's because of the fear that causes the panic so that they couldn't think and study and be able to process their mind properly when they actually took the exam. So it's not because it's real, but because fear has hindered normal thinking and behavior. So friends, fear can be very, very unhealthy. It can be imagined, it can be exaggerated. And so in our text today, we will see fear manifest itself three times and in three different ways for different reasons. We're gonna see David fearing Saul. We're gonna see Jonathan fearing David. And we're gonna see both of them fearing God. And there's different fears for different purposes that unfold as we look at this text. So still, it is the covenant of friendship before God that helps Jonathan and David navigate through the difficulties that they're facing. So let's jump in now at what I'm calling fearing Saul, fearing Saul. Now friends, if, if you haven't been with us through 1 Samuel, um, let me just, just remind you or help you along here that, that, that the, the story starts out with, um, there was no king in Israel, every man was doing right in his own eyes. That's the end of the book of Judges. And then we have this, this season where God is raising up Samuel to lead Israel, and through Samuel he is going to raise up a king. But the people come and they, they're impatient, they're demanding a king, and so he gives them the king they want, and that's Saul. And then Saul, although gifted by God, fails in honoring God and respecting God, and God then anoints David to be his chosen king. And so we, we are right in the section where, where uh, Samuel's around, um, but he, he's, he, he's, he's really not taking a, a leadership role anymore. Saul now is the king, but he is acting in a crazy way, degenerating in that kind of kingship role. And you have David now who is, who's ascending that throne. So we're kind of in this transition time, and we're also in this time where, where Saul is seeking to kill David, and so it's understandable why David is fearful of Saul and why he may be confused at the moment. So since Saul made that vow that we read earlier, right, 1 Samuel 19, verse six, um, David has had to dodge Saul's spear for the third time, 
He's had to flee from his own house with the help of his wife. He, he has been hidden and protected in Ramah by the Spirit of God while staying in the camp of the prophets of Samuel. Why? Well, part of the reason is because David defeated Goliath rather than Saul. Part of the reason is because David has been successful in battle while serving as a servant of Saul. And part of the reason is because Saul wants David dead. So it's pretty reasonable to come to the conclusion um, that David is fearful of Saul. I think you probably would be too, okay? Now, as we pick up this, this story, what we find is David swearing his innocence to Jonathan, his good friend. Verse one, then David fled from uh, Naloth in Ramah and came and said before, uh, before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So if you remember, David went and he was with Samuel, but God was not protecting him by virtue of Samuel. God was protecting him through the spirit of God that was there. He leaves there, he finds Jonathan. So he's going back now into this enemy territory and he seeks out his friend. And he's basically saying this, I have only been faithful and respectful to the king. Please tell me or find out what is it that I have done to deserve your father chasing me around with a spear or trying to seek my life. And Jonathan, notice, responds in protest. He says, far from it. In other words, David, what are you talking about? You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So get the picture here. David is coming to Jonathan saying, listen, I have no idea why this is all happening, but your father is out to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, he's not. He promised that you would be protected. He promised that you would be safe. And so clearly, Jonathan is not aware of what David has been doing in pursuing David's life. He has not been part of the inner circle, so to speak, his father has been functioning without talking to his son. Now he is the son of the king. He is the second in command. He is part of the king's inner circle. So Jonathan here is not in denial, just ignorant of Saul's pursuit of David. So David, understanding his friend's ignorance of the facts, appeals to their covenant emphasizing that Saul had purposely kept Jonathan in the dark. Look, look at verse three. But David vowed again, he vowed again, catch that, he vowed. And he's saying to Jonathan, listen, I'm, what I'm telling you is the truth. I promise that what I'm telling you is what has happened. Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So David is saying, how can I emphasize that I'm telling you the truth more than to speak under the witness of God? This is intimate and accountable language. He's saying, what I'm telling you, Jonathan, is true. You have to believe me. You have to trust me. Based on our covenant. Now it's their covenant loyalty 
that is the basis for Jonathan's believing David's words. Therefore, Jonathan responds, verse four, whatever you say, I will do for you. Now friends, this is hugely significant in the ongoing story. The king's son is now submitting to David, the shepherd boy, warrior, champion, but this is upside down. Jonathan shouldn't be bowing to David. He should not be humbling himself before David or submitting to David. The picture is totally upside down. He is the king's son, but he's also a loyal friend. Friends, this is important for us to see. So what began now with David's swearing his innocence continues now with David strategizing a plan. Continue on in verse five. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field uh, till the third day at evening. So David being part of the king's family would naturally be expected to attend this Uh, these feasts, these moon feasts. So how Saul responds in his absence will reveal what his heart is or what's in his heart. Verse eight, if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. If he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. So just Summarizing, David's strategy is this. If he responds positively, it'll be well. If he responds with anger, he intends harm. So this plan is a test that will confirm to both David and Jonathan what is truly going on in the heart of Saul. So based on all that, David has been saying, he he appeals to Jonathan, his friend, to deal kindly with him. Let's read now verse eight. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, but if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? The covenant here had serious implications. And we're not living in a context today where covenants are taken that seriously. We're not living in a context where someone speaks a promise and it's done, or if it's not done, there is great humility and recognizing, you know, I failed in that, I need, to rec- I need to restore that, I need to change that. We're not living in that kind of context. This was a huge deal, this was a covenant, but th- th- I want you to focus now on, on a particular word here, it's actually two words in the ESV here. He says, therefore deal kindly with your servant. This is the Hebrew word, hesed. And this is gonna be a a theme that goes along with the covenant. And what it it literally means is this. It's a covenant loyalty and love. In our English translations, um, it's, it's translated a number of different ways. Deal kindly, show faithful love, be merciful, show love or or loving kindness. And according to Dale Davis, um, this is how this word is used. It carries ideas of love, compassion, affection, but often with the additional connotations of loyalty, reliability, and faithfulness. So hesed often has that flavor. It is not merely love, 
but it's loyal love. It is not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. It is not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. So David is appealing not just to a friend, but he's appealing to a covenant that was made between them. And he's saying, deal kindly with me. Deal lovingly, but loyally with me because of the covenant that we have established together. So David's appeal is to to listen and follow his plan. Uh, this, This is all based on this covenant relationship before the Lord. So David says, deal kindly with your servant. Compare that with what Jonathan has just said earlier, whatever you say, I will do. Jonathan submits to David, David submits to Jonathan. There is a mutual submission as well as a healthy respect of position in that covenant. Now friends, this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be kind of a, not kind of, but in a covenant friendship, in a loyal friendship together. Now as the world around him is falling apart. David knew where he could turn. All right, Saul is chasing him down. Saul is trying to kill him. He does find refuge there with Samuel, but ultimately he knew where he could find someone that was going to speak to him, that was going to stand with him, that was going to be beside him, and that person is Jonathan. Jonathan was his loyal friend, his covenant friend. And this, friends, is how believers have lived through the centuries, turning to and appealing to the one in whom they can find refuge. When we're going through difficult times, we ultimately want to turn to God. We want to turn to Christ. We want to put things in perspective and see what he has to say. Listen to some of these verses. Nehemiah 1.5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Same language, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 13, five and six, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 17, verses six through seven, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love that has said again, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So friends, in confusion, in difficulty, in fear and trouble, where do you take yourself? Now you might say on a practical level, I take myself to some friends that I have. Let me just tell you something. It's good to have faithful friends, right? It's good to be able to talk with another person that can talk back to you and you can interact over these things. But let me just emphasize this, that although that is good, it's good as long as they, like Jonathan, are going to point you to God, to Christ, and his place, uh, and and him being the place of ultimate refuge. In other words, it's, it's one thing to say I have a friend, but that friend needs to point you to Christ. That friend needs to point you to God's word. So I'm going through this difficulty. Who do I turn to? I might turn to a friend, but that friend then is going to sit there or stand there across the table at Starbucks and say, hey, listen, this is what the word of God says. This is what God wants you to do. And if I'm going to be a loyal friend, if I'm going to be 
faithful to you, I'm going to make sure that I'm reflecting God's truth to you, not just giving kind of worldly ideas. I'm taking the truth of God and I'm feeding you with it so that you can now look at your present situation and say, this is what God desires for me to do. That's what a faithful, loyal friend does. So we ultimately turn to God. And here, you'll notice in the story here that, that Jonathan and David, there's this constant r- reminder, this constant emphasis about the witness of God in the presence of God, this covenant that was made with the Lord. So this was not a, an, a, you know, a, an agnostic covenant, a, a covenant made apart from God. This is a covenant that has God in the center of it. This is a loyalty that has God thinking through being present in the lives of Jonathan and David. So Jonathan is David's answer, so to speak, to being that covenant friend who's pointing him to God ultimately when he is fearing Saul. But now we're looking at fearing David. And I would just like to say right up front here as we look at the subject that that what we're going to get to is Jonathan fearing David. And you have to hold that thought. Just kind of allow the text now to speak. Allow the text to to give us that truth. And we'll see where we're coming from, right? So at first, this idea of Jonathan's fear of David seems a little unusual, seems a little strange. But let's let the text speak here. Notice, first of all, what I'm calling Jonathan's protest. So having listened to David and now convinced that David is speaking truthfully to him, Jonathan protests once again, not against David, but for his loyalty toward David. Notice verse nine, and Jonathan said, far be it from you if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Jonathan's saying, listen, I didn't, all the stuff you tell me, I, I had no idea this was going on. My father made a vow to me. He promised me these things would not happen. But I believe you because you are my covenant friend. And because you're my covenant friend, I'm telling you and I'm protesting that if I had known, I would have come to your aid. I would have told you. So he's emphasizing to David I truly did not know, and if I did, be assured that I would have told you. Now friends, we have here a positive example of what our conversation should be like when we expect or we assume that another person knows what you have been experiencing or what you've been talking about. Jonathan has only David's word to go by. He doesn't have any other information. All he has is the word of a covenant friend. And what should you hear from a covenant friend? Truth. Truth that you believe. So as far as Jonathan is concerned, David's word is his bond. David has no reason to lie. So what he's saying, although unthinkable, must be true. Why? Because my loyal covenant friend is telling me that it is true. And so we then move to verse 10. And David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers roughly? And that's actually a question that this text is gonna seek to answer, and we'll see it eventually finalized as the plan unfolds, but they do come up with a plan here um, that we'll see. David and Jonathan have a plan that will reveal Saul's heart, but they don't, at this point in time, have a plan of communication once that 
revelation takes place. So verse 11 kicks in, and Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. This is Jonathan's Jonathan's, uh, protest. Now we're having Jonathan's promise. Jonathan now moves from protest of loyalty to promise of loyalty. And Jonathan's promise will be under the accountable gaze of heaven. Look at verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. What does that communicate to you? Like just kind of a, just kind of a, you know, a formality. I don't think so. I think I think what we have here in all the discussions of covenant, it's it, we're bringing God in the picture. Jonathan's bringing him into the picture, and he's bringing him into the picture to say, "Listen, here, this is this is this is what I'm saying, and this is true." And Jonathan said to David, "The Lord of the, the God of Israel, be witness." This was no small test they were undertaking. This test would have rippling implications in their relationship with Saul as well as all of Israel. So a promise now is considered for the immediate, the plan now. And notice how this is laid out. Here's what Jonathan says to David. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? So if, if, if he's like, if he says, hey, I'm fine with David, then you know, I'll communicate with you, I'll disclose it to you. But verse 13, should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And so he's putting his own life, his own harm on the line to say, hey, listen, I have a responsibility to disclose it to you. I have a responsibility to communicate it to you. Now, this, this word disclose is actually a very important word. It's a word that just doesn't mean speak. It literally has the idea of uncovering the ear. And it paints the picture of confidential or whispered disclosure. And so it's not just that he's gonna send him a note. There's something personal about this. I'm gonna come personally and I'm gonna talk to you. I'm gonna let you know what's gonna happen or what has happened. If it's favorable, I'm gonna come to you. But if it's favorable, just think about it. It wouldn't be that difficult then to pursue David because everything's okay. Saul's not out to get him and so Saul wouldn't have any problem with Jonathan finding David and talking to him. But if Saul wants him dead, then it's gonna be much more difficult for Jonathan to communicate to David and so they ultimately come up with a plan. But before they do that, notice Jonathan's petition. Jonathan is having, having prophesied his loyalty and promised David that he would disclose his intentions of his father or the intentions of his father. Jonathan petitions now for his own future and the future of his household. Friends, what this text is revealing, um, hold on a second here. What this text is revealing to us is that Jonathan is aware there's something bigger going on there's something more significant that's taking place. There's something um, of, of, of greater importance that's happening with David and Jonathan and his father. Ultimately, he, re- he recognizes that David will eventually be the king of Israel. We'll show you that. That the spirit of God who was on his father Saul and now departed is on David. And it doesn't take too much to imagine what happens to a former king's household to understand what Jonathan is fearful of. 
And to give a couple of examples, let's look at uh, some kings who were sitting on the throne, who were deposed, and what happened. So turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 15. I'm just going to be brief here, but 1 Kings 15, and we're going to look at verse 29. Here we have Nadam, and ultimately Nadam is reigning, but two years into his reign, a man by the name of Basha kills Nadam and becomes king. And then the text reads, 1 Kings 15, 29, we just look at the first part, and as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. And then I want you just to flip over a little bit further, 1 Kings 16, and here we have Elah, and two years into his reign, he's the son of Basha, so Basha's the one that came in and killed, now he has a son, and he is king over Judah, but two years into his reign, Zimri, the commander of the chariots, conspired against Elah and killed him. Then the text reads, 1 Kings 16, 11, when he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Do you understand what Jonathan is thinking now? If David is going to ultimately become king, then what likely, what potentially, what culturally is typical and can happen? Jonathan foresees the future when it's not David that is the fugitive, but that Jonathan is. So Jonathan makes his petition for the future and he's looking ahead. Notice the first petition, petition number one, for the favor of God on David. For the favor of God on David. Notice what it says, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Well, wait a second. At this point in time, I don't know that you want something about Saul to be attributed to you. But there's a sense here that Jonathan recognizes there was a time when my father was actually under the, under the influence of the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God rushed on him. But now he recognizes that the Spirit of God has departed from him and has actually now rushed on David. And David now is moving in the strength and the power and the guidance of the Spirit of God. So he's petitioning God's favor on his loyal friend, David. He's expressing his confidence that David will be king. Notice the second petition. For the kindness of David toward Jonathan, verse 14. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love, again, that has said, of the Lord, that I may not die. David, if you're going to be king, this is what usually happens so I need your promise, I need your kindness, I need your mercy, but you will not kill me. And friends, this, this word has said it's a steady anchor to friendships in times of fear and uncertainty, this kindness, this mercy, this, this loving kindness that's born out of covenant loyalty. His final petition then is not just for Jonathan, but it's for Jonathan's 
house. Verse 15, do not cut off your steadfast love, again that has said, from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now remember, this covenant friendship um, was initiated by Jonathan, who was, whose, whose spirit was knit together with David. When, when he came from that field of battle, carrying Goliath's head to meet the king, Jonathan, there was just something that happened in his spirit, in his heart, that he's like, here's a man that I love. Here's a man that I can, I can affirm. Here's a man that, that has the same passions as me. And it's because of this covenant that we now see these, these requests that are coming out. It's becoming clear to Jonathan that his father is an enemy of God. Notice what it says, verse 15. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan does not want to be considered an enemy of David. He's not. He's a friend. He's a loyal friend. So now he's appealing to David, to this hesed, to this kindness, this mercy. Don't cut me off. And then we finally see Jonathan's covenant with David's house. So both Jonathan and David affirm and renew their covenant loyalty. And it was a covenant by Jonathan for David, but also against his enemies. Look at verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. So Jonathan is... He's casting his lot, he's casting his loyalty, not with his father, but with David. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You might wonder, why do they have to repeat these covenants over and over again? Isn't it enough to say the covenant once? And the answer is yes, it's enough. But David, just like any other human being, can be unsettled, can be fearful, can be a person who is questioning. And so hearing that covenant once again, Jonathan hearing that covenant once again, is a means of assurance. So these repetitions or reaffirmations do not undermine the initial covenants, they just reinforce the certainty of them. If you're married, at that moment, at the altar, you looked into your spouse's eyes and you said, I do. Was that the last time you ever said, I love you? Hopefully you've reinforced that covenant over time. It's not that it wasn't true when you say it again. You're just reinforcing it. You're reinforcing it. And friends, this is fleshed out even in the context of the church. Every time we celebrate the Lord's table, we remember the new covenant in Christ's blood. It's an opportunity to be reminded that we can find refuge in him, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, that, that our status as God's children has not changed. And so we are reminded again by going through this celebration that reminds us of the promise that was given to us. And so it's reinforced every time we do it. 
We know that these things are true, but often we're fearful or, or Satan comes and puts doubts in our minds. And so we can doubt, we can question, we can be deceived, but through the Lord's table celebration, we remember once again that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now friends, that's Jonathan's fear of David. And it was a right fear. It was an appropriate fear. It was one that was born out of this covenant relationship. And then we look at this final fear, fearing God. This is both Jonathan and David, and, and, and we have, a, we have some, some data here that's gonna help us understand. They have a plan now for this communication, and a lot of that we're gonna cover next week because it lays the groundwork for the rest of the chapter, so we're not gonna focus much time on that except to say that this plan involved a boy and the shooting of three arrows, um, and it was the answer to David's earlier question, which is found in verse 10, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly. There was an answer, there was a solution brought by Jonathan, but I wanna draw your attention to verse 23. And verse 23 says this, and as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Now the question is, what is this matter? What is the matter of which you and I have spoken? Surely it involved their covenant friendship. But it was most likely what Jonathan and David now understood were the unfolding realities that were taking place, that the future uh, uh, of David was that he would be king. Jonathan is saying that. David is aware of that. David would rise in the Lord's time and in the Lord's way, but through it all, their covenant loyalty and friendship would be firm through the Lord's providence. And for the matter for which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. Friends, that's an that's incredible statement. This, this loyalty, this covenant that says, based on what we now understand, once again, we may go through it, but as we go through it, the Lord is central in it. And friends, that's a covenant that is not broken. That is a covenant that has the Lord holding it together. Now friends, this is, this is all just a, a wonderful story for us to think through uh, the, the beauties of covenant loyalty. And as we, as we kind of work our way out of this text, I wanna work some of the principles out of this text thinking through four different categories. So this morning I wanna begin by thinking of this, this beautiful covenant loyalty. We begin by looking at the covenant between Jonathan and David. It is a beautiful picture of covenant friendship. A friendship that all Christ-honoring men, and we would put in there women, should be establishing in their relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Men with men, women with women. This is the kind of thing you want. You wanna have that person in your life that you can come to, that you can find refuge with, because they are going to draw you to Christ in the various seasons of life. Life has its problems, does it not? And there are ups and there are downs. And sometimes there's a lot more downs. Well, let's just put it this way. Sometimes it's the downs that require a lot more energy on our part to go through them. And having that friend 
but not just a friend, but a friend that is covenanting with you, that is willing to be loyal to you, that's, that's saying to you, listen, I am here. I will, be, I will be here if you need me, and I will speak to you, and you can be transparent with me, and what you say stays here because this is our friendship, and we're doing this for ourselves, but we're doing this for the glory of God, and so we're going to be, be careful and mindful to help one another when there are times of danger and difficulty. You can count on this person. Also, when there are misunderstandings that happen, and it even involves that person who is a covenant friend, it's that covenant relationship, that covenant loyalty that is the anchor to keep us harbored in God's word and resting in God's providential care. In other words, a covenant friendship is willing to fight for that friendship rather than just be easily offended and abandon it. My friends, you know, we're, we're living in an age where you can create friends all over the place. I could, in about 20 seconds, if I could get my phone on, I could, I could, I could add a lot of friends to my life, right? through Facebook and all these different things. So the, the, even the idea of friend is totally diminished. But we're talking about the kind of person who you want to live your life with. And by that, I don't always necessarily mean who lives in the same community as you or even lives in the same city as you or even the same state as you, but you can pick up the phone when you're going through difficulty and you can say, hey, listen, can we talk? And on the other end, everything drops because this person is there ready to help their covenant friend. Friends, that's a, that's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture that we all need. But there's another picture that we need to think through here, and that is the covenant between brothers and sisters in Christ. There's so much turnover in the American church today. Would you agree with that? And a lot of the turnover is not because of I want to say solid, robust, theological reasons. A lot of it is temperamental. A lot of it's feelings. A lot of it's preferences. Some of the turnover in the American church today is due to a weak theology of the church. Where people are fickle about their preferences, where people are easily offended, where there is no teaching on the loyalty that we should have toward one another. Some of this turnover is due to a weak understanding of the gospel. People are offended when the gospel is actually proclaimed. People are offended when we're pressing down that, that, that God actually does exercise wrath and that there is wrath that, that is needed because of your sin. And how could you say that? How could you be so, so firm that sin deserves wrath? Well, without that, then Jesus on the cross means nothing. What that means is that Jesus went to the cross to be an example for us. Yeah, I'm a sacrifice. Where Jesus didn't go to the cross simply to, to, to be an example for us. Jesus went on that cross to bear our wrath. The wrath that the Father has for us, he took in our place. And friends, that has to happen in order for the gospel to be realized. And sometimes that's why people may leave a church because the preaching of God's truth is just too strong, it's too heavy, and they don't want to be under it. They don't want to be accountable. They want to do church. But there isn't a loyalty, 
There isn't a covenant loyalty to that church and to the word of God and to the gospel and to the God that is overseeing that church, fleshing out his truth, being faithful to honor him in what they're doing. I would say though, most of all, it's simply due, this, this turnover in the church is simply due to a weak understanding of the person and work of Christ. You see, we've been brought out of darkness into light. We have been aliens and pilgrims who have been welcomed into the family of God. Church is not a social gathering. It is a gathering that ends up being social, but it is not a social gathering. We're we're not coming here to be entertained. I can do some funny dances, I can tell some jokes. But friends, that is not my job. And if you want it to be my job, I would just ask you, adjust your thinking or or find another church because I'm not gonna be doing that. My job as pastor is to help teach the word of God and help you understand the word of God and, and in doing that, help you understand how the gospel speaks to your life every day in decisions you face, choices you make, struggles you're going through. If you're a child of God, you have been born again, you have a new way of thinking, you have a new passion put in you because of the Holy Spirit. If that is true, then how does the word of God help us to live our lives for his glory facing all these different things? And one of the areas here is the need for us in the body of Christ to recognize that we are a covenant community, meaning we are joining together in a partnership, in an agreement I was asked yesterday, what is church membership about? For some people in some churches, church membership is about going through a process so I can vote. Isn't it? We don't do that here. What do you mean? You don't let me vote. No. We have leaders that we've raised up. We have elders in our church, and those elders are responsible to care for the flock. That's what Scripture says. And those elders need to have big ears to listen to what's going on, but there's a reason why there's leadership. Leadership needs to lead. And so there's there's an important reality to say that membership is far more than simply voting. Membership is partnering, it's it's, it's, it's covenanting together, hey listen, this is the body of Christ that I want to be fashioned and shaped by. This is the body of Christ that I want to sit under the word of God listening to it and being challenged by by the people of God in this place. And if I'm struggling in sin, excuse me, in sin, I want God's people to come and to help me to to get out of that sin. And if I am responsible to to help a person in need that's part of that church family, then I'm partnering with you. We have we have families recently that have uh, had little ones born and we've said, "Hey, we need meals." Boom. We have meals you know, all over the place. You guys just boom, 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 boom are meeting needs. That's what a church does. Why? Because we're partnering together to care for one another. It's not about voting. It's about being together. It's about community. It's about saying, I'll partner with you. You partner with me. We're agreeing that's true. Based on the principles and the teachings of God's word that we agree to, okay? Friends, there's a need for us to develop and to pursue this covenant loyalty. We're the people of God, and we are also sinful creatures. Would you agree with that? So we are a covenant community, 
that has people within that covenant community who are us, who behave sinfully. And when we behave sinfully, uh, sometimes we do things to one another that are sinful. Sometimes we say things about one another that are downright mean. And sometimes there will be times when we get angry with one another or envy one another or covet what another may have or receive. But hear this, maturity in Christ forces us to dig deep into our covenant loyalty and treat each other with kindness. I want you to think through these next few verses. Here's the New Testament equivalent to what we're seeing in our text. Brothers, this is Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that doesn't mean church leadership, that means if you are a believer in Christ, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You are spiritual, you help. You do what you can to restore. By the way, it may be you one day, and how do you want to be treated? Well, if you're part of a covenant community that loves one another, that's pursuing these loyalties, then you will be treated in the same way that you are gently treating them. Then we have Matthew 18, 15. Of course, this is the passage that talks about church discipline, but Think about church discipline in the context of biblical love being exercised. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. It doesn't say go and scream at him. It says go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've what? You've gained your brother. So you've, you've restored that relationship. And then we have Ephesians 4, 15, rather speaking the truth. How? In love. We are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. Rebuke, confrontation, doesn't necessarily mean raise your voice and speak loudly. Covenant friendship and loyalty fights for the faith of those who are part of that covenant. Let me say that again. Covenant friendship and loyalty fights for the faith of those who are part of that covenant. So being a church is a covenant relationship and that covenant relationship needs to be reaffirmed often and especially when things are rough or there are offenses. So when a difficulty arises or a conflict brews up, we must be quick to say something like this. My dear brother or sister, first know that I love you and am committed to our friendship and loyalty. I want to honor God and I want to be sure to be kind and loving toward you to build you up, so please hear my words and consider what I have to say. You see, there's, there's a tone that is needed for a covenant community. So let's be strong as a covenant fellowship of believers. Let's, be, let's fight against the enemy that wants to come and destroy our beautiful friendship in Christ. Let's work hard when challenges arise and rest on our covenant loyalty. Friends, there's an important reality, there's something beautiful about the covenant between brothers and sisters in Christ. God's called us to live that out. God's called us to be that. And let's work hard to be loyal, to be covenantally loyal to one another in this relationship. Then, the third area is the covenant between husband and wife. Why is it that so many marriages fail today? Why is it that even Christian couples have so much difficulty staying together as husband and wife? 
Certainly there is a cultural narrative that views marriage as just a little higher than serious dating, right? A relationship that is committed as long as it's committed. Well, that makes no sense. Well, I'm committed to you as long as I'm committed to you. But if I see someone else that I want to be committed to, then bye-bye. Well, that's just kind of the, the way things are anymore. It's a relationship that's about me, myself, and I, what I can get out of it. But that is not how God views marriage. Marriage is a lifelong covenant that two people make between one another in the presence of many witnesses and before God. Let me say that one more time. Marriage is a lifelong covenant that two people make between one another in the presence of many witnesses and before God. And so when the couple says, I do, or I will, or in my case, see, um, they are making a promise, a covenant that they are committed to loyalty and faithfulness. Now the vow or the covenant usually goes something like this. There's variations on this, but let me just remind you. I, Rod, take you, Elia, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. Now friends, that is a sacred vow. That is not a flippant statement. That is a sacred vow given before witnesses and before God and to that partner. Do we see it as that? So if you're a follower of Christ and you are married, you made a covenant. You're in a covenant relationship with your spouse and it's a covenant made before the Lord and knowing that truth will be an anchor as the difficulties of marriage and family kicking gear during different seasons in life. I was talking to someone this week, not someone that's part of our church, someone who's not part of our church, who was talking to me about going through some marital difficulties and in their home they have um, children who are, I think, 15, 18, and I think the other one's like 20. And I said, hmm, I bet your marital conflicts have a lot to do with parenting. And the person chuckled and said, as a matter of fact, yes, they do. See, different seasons of life bring up different issues, bring different tests, bring different struggles. And marriages then, that are marriages that are pursuing loyalty will say, hey, listen, I know this is difficult, I know this is hard, but we will work at this. We will fight to be faithful and loyal. So friends, don't be quick to give in. Don't be disloyal and look outside your marriage for that person to turn to because it might seem like, a, oh, this would be satisfactory, but it will come with a lot of heartache and chaos. Stay and stick it out in such a way that would glorify God. You made a covenant. Live according to that covenant. Fight because of that covenant as much as you can and as far as you can go. Now, if your spouse is being or has been disloyal to you, you're part of our church, don't return evil for evil. If it's a really serious struggle and uh, one of you is looking to jump ship, fight your pride or the fear of embarrassment and, and talk to the church leadership who will seek to guide you to follow God's word. The point I'm trying to make here is this. A lot of times, 
marriages suffer because um, they're afraid to talk to the church because they think that discipline's gonna happen as opposed to care. And care is part of what is necessary for the body of Christ. We're loyal to each other. We only want what's best. That's what a church should be doing. So men, make sure your wife knows that you love her and that you are exclusively loyal to her. When was the last time you told her that? I know you've told her that before. But when was the last time you told her that? And when there's a conflict, always remember the backdrop of hesed, the steadfast love or kindness of covenant loyalty. Wives, remind your husband that your heart is exclusively his. That your desire is to honor God in all areas of your marriage, that even though there is conflict, that you are committed to working hard and resolving the conflict God's way. And then as a church family, relating to this subject here, we must be quick to counsel one another in our marriages with tenderness and understanding, always willing to acknowledge that marriage can and is difficult at times, so we're not haughty, but we're empathetic seeking to draw people to the word of God to help them through the struggles they're facing. So the covenant with the church, the covenant between husband and wife, and let's just finish this up with the covenant um, between Christ and his church. This is the covenant, friends, that, is, um, that, that ripples through all the covenants I've just mentioned. And it's, it's a huge topic, but it's, it's important that we, we kind of finish on this this covenant between Christ and his church. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We didn't seek him out, he sought us. He breathed new life into our souls and we were brought into the family of God. This covenant was sealed by his blood and we are now clothed with his righteous garments. See, he's promised us new life in Christ, he's promised us eternal life, he's promised us abundant life, and the sign of the beginning of this covenant is baptism. So we follow in obedience the waters of baptism, showing the world the beauty of God's covenant with us, and then the sign of his continuing covenant with us is the celebration of the Lord's table. And because of this covenant, we are promised everything we need for life and godliness. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, he made a covenant with us, and he promises that he will follow through with that covenant to the end. Some concluding thoughts, real briefly here. Number one, the word review. It's not up on the screen. The word review. I want to encourage you just to sit down and to review the covenant relationships that you're in. What are they? Have you, have you forgotten about them? Have you put them in that kind of category recently? So what covenants do you have? Secondly, pursue First review, then pursue. What covenant relationships should you be pursuing? 
You know, maybe you're, maybe you're a guy and you, you just don't have that, that covenant friend. Well, you know, be a friend who's friendly to develop a relationship with someone so that you can have that kind of covenant loyalty in a friendship. What are some covenants that you need to pursue? And then finally, the third one is this, it's renew. What covenants need to be reaffirmed by you? And that might mean you grab your wife, or maybe you grab your husband, and you look him in the eyes and say, listen, I said this a long time ago. I do, I will, it hasn't changed. And before God, I'm saying it again, because I'm committed to you. It's not just that I love you, but I'm committed to you through thick and thin. We are loyal, covenant friends before God. Would help us today. Just to wrap our hands around this incredible story of Jonathan and David. And Lord, even in this story, Lord, there's, there's misunderstanding or there's some, some questions about what is really going on. And Lord, so many times in our relationships that there can be confusion, there can be misunderstanding, and there can be questions of doubt whether someone is actually telling the truth. And Lord, some of that is because we haven't developed the depth in our relationship with someone to say this is a covenant relationship, that you are only going to speak the truth. And Lord, I know that we are sinful and sometimes our, uh, our, our words may not be completely accurate or struggle, but Lord, we, we, we believe in one another. We, we believe in that person that is part of that covenant relationship. Lord, I just ask that you would help us now to consider what you want us to be doing, Lord, from this text. The primary thing, Lord, is that we come before you and we, we reaffirm, Lord, the beauty and the joy and the kindness, Lord, of, of you bringing us into a covenant relationship with you, bringing us into the church and being part of, of this bride of Christ. We do not deserve this, Lord, and yet you've blessed us with it. And then, Lord, there's this relationship that we have with one another and there's this relationship we have in our marriages. Lord, help us not to be fickle, not to be like the world and just playing around with marriage as if you can just jump in and jump out, Lord, but to stick with it. But Lord, to, to do that with the counsel and the care of your word. And Lord, I know sometimes uh, the person that we're married to does not desire that. They want to follow some other path that doesn't honor you. And Lord, I, I ask that you would give those who may be experiencing that wisdom and discernment to, to find help from those who are part of their church and particularly the leaders of the church, Lord, so that they can, they can move in directions that would truly honor you. But recognize, Lord, that that is all part of a responsibility of being the body of Christ. Lord, help, help your people to turn to the church and to turn to those who want to help within the church. Lord, help our marriages, help us to love you and to respond to you as covenant friends. You have initiated with us. We praise you for it. Now, Lord, help us to live it out, to honor it with lives, Lord, that desire to glorify you. We ask this in your precious name, amen.